Welcome back to Twins Talk TV, The Peripheral. This week we're going to be covering episode three of the new Amazon Prime series. This is Beep. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain, and I am joined by Mick. And you can find me at MickNick1291 on Twitter. Awesome. So let's jump right in. We got some good feedback from our first two episodes, so thank you for that. Go on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, rate, review, all that nice stuff. It helps us out. Also, we're very driven by positive praise, so it makes us feel better about our lives. We only have to get through eight episodes, but I promise you can help us do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's jump right in. And let's discuss how Corbell Pickett is maybe one of the most terrifying human beings of all time. Yeah, so we start in a flashback of 2015, and we're in 2032? Yes, 2032. So this is about 17 years ago, and we see a young Jasper washing cars at his Uncle Corbell's dealership. Poor little Jasper is just staring blankly at cars to see why rinse is so puff. I found it very funny. Yeah, this kid uh, doesn't seem super sharp. There's, he's got got some growing to do. And a group of bikers, who we later learn are members of a drug cartel, roll up on their motorcycles, and Corbell comes out to greet them. Jasper seems a little uncomfortable by it, but Corbell's like, oh, don't worry about it, just keep rinsing off these cars. <laughs> and... What happens is he hooks up these cartel members with these like super decked out SUVs, like bulletproof glass, electronic locks, like the full package, like best car you can get in 2015, maybe better than what you can get in 2015 in all honesty. And what happens is he makes a deal with them and he's like, these are the best cars ever. If anything goes wrong with them. I'll fix them for free. Don't worry about it. You have my word on it. They shake on it. And it's like, get in the cars. He tosses the keys to these cartel guys. Get in the cars. Well, the cartel members have a little to say. They're like, hey, we noticed your billboards had crosses by them. Like, did somebody pull a prank on you? And he's like, no, I found God. Get in these cars. Get in the cars. I promise you it'll be fine. Get in the cars. I found God. It's fine. Well, (laughs) they get in the cars. The door is locked. They can't get out. They try to shoot their way out. They can't because of the bulletproof glass. Which he was not kidding about. No, they're very bulletproof. (laughs) And poor little child Jasper watches as Corbell explains to him, how long do you think before they cook alive? (laughs) That is wild because Corbell tells them, When he's making that deal with them, you know, it sounds like he's getting out of this business. So they're like, what the heck? And he's like, don't worry, I'll service it for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, like, that's a weird proposition. Oh, wait, you're you're murdering them. Yeah, okay. Okay. You're evil. Sounds great. (laughs) We're doing murder now. I got it. I got it. But what he says to Jasper, first of all, makes him participate in a weird roundabout way of like, just go ahead and splash that on them. Let them know what they're missing. Like <laughs> he's wants him to spray water all over this thing. But this is the line that he says. I've never written down any other lines, but I wrote this down because it put a chill down my spine. 
He tells Jasper, you won't get anywhere in life if you don't have the courage to be cruel now and then, just for the pure animal joy of it. It's a fucked up dude. Yeah, he's scary. So if if you didn't get, like, they have built up Corbell in the first two episodes as, like, this crime boss who runs the town. And I was going to say city, and I'm like, no, 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 this is not a city. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not. It is a town. And here they're like, oh, in case we didn't make it just abundantly clear that he is one sadistic fuck, have a flashback. Yeah, where he's truly backing it up. This is not just a man of, like, intimidation. I mean, he is next level. And we see him kick over, right, the nails before he's leaving. So we know. We pretty much know what's going on. But way forward, whenever they're talking to Twi- to Flynn in 2100, he did this to 12 of those guys and hung them up on crosses, like, on the way he, into the city. He, like, crucified town. them. Yeah. After death, of course, you just hung them. But yeah, it, mm. but he, but he found God. I think he decided he was God. But sure, <laughs> yeah. And after that horrifying cold open, we cut to Corbell's estate, his his manor estate, where he is swimming naked in the pool, and his wife is sitting on the side with her feet in the water. And he pops out of the water and he asks her, he's like, what are we going to do about the, the Flynn situation? And you think like maybe he married like a trophy wife who's naive to his evil ways? <laughs> no. Oh, no, she's very conniving. She says that he can return the money, I believe, and mm-hmm. do nothing. He can keep the money and let them live out their natural lives. He could kill them. And he's like, these all sound like terrible ideas. And she just goes, or Jasper. No, poor baby. You knew they were going to drag him into the middle of it. Also, can I point out, I just love the line about him peeing in the pool. Corbell, are you peeing in the pool? It's my pool. Because she's like, then I'll have to divorce you, but at least there won't be pee in my pool. <laughs> yeah. Well, she goes, will you ever grow up? And he's like maybe what would what would you do and she's like well i'd probably have to divorce you but at least there wouldn't be pee in my pool (laughs) that's excellent they're actually like for like for an evil couple they kind of are a cute evil couple right they actually have a pretty balanced dynamic between them because i'm like you i just assumed she was you know arm candy essentially and yeah no but she's a conniving little bitch (laughs) yeah she really is she's perfect for him like they're a match made in heaven they are very much on the same level match made in hell might be more appropriate actually it might be yes the the hell that he's now god of because he just crucifies people for fun yeah so we we get the we get the note that oh we're gonna we're gonna drag jasper into it because billy ann is best friends with flynn so have jasper keep an eye on the fishers cut to flynn dumping every ounce of what's going on to Billy yeah. Ann. <laughs> yeah. Billy Ann just got an exposition dump. Thankfully, we did not. Well, yeah, we, we already knew what was going on. It's really cool. There's They're sitting in the back of a truck at a waterfront, and in front of them is this like holographic projection of these three drones flying around. 
And Flynn explains that Burton gave her this app or whatever on her phone that projected the drone locations. And Billy Ann is like, oh, is that is that the homestead where, you know, you guys are getting hunted to your death? And Flynn's like, no. She looks up. There are three drones. How Billy Ann didn't notice the three drones buzzing above them? Beyond me. Nah. But Leon is tracking them, like, following. I, I love that Flynn has... Not only surveillance, but security now everywhere she goes. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. So Billy Ann knows everything. She's like, shit, trips to the future, magical drug. She's like, what the fuck is going on? But Flynn does mention that there is an awful lot less people in 2100. Right, and that she knows something happens to her, but that they will not tell her what it is, or at least now what happened to the Flynn in their timeline. And so they will not tell her, obviously not only what the bigger issue is, because she's not stupid. She sees, uh, there's not very many people here. <laughs> they won't tell her the bigger issue, nor will they tell her what happened to the Flynn in their timeline, since she's technically no longer that person as she exists now in the stub. Right. So that's, that's kind of the end of the Billy Ann Flynn situation. So Flynn heads to work where inside of Kinko's is Burton and his little band of mercenaries printing guns. These guys are printing up a full arsenal for war, essentially. And she's so concerned. She's like, you can't do that here. And he's like, yeah, we just bought the place. <laughs> no problem. And she is like, Burton, outside right fucking now. And she's like, did you just make your friends my boss? And he's like, of course not. I'm like, you're their boss. <laughs> and she's like, you, you can't go buying the Kinkos. This is where we go to back in. This is, I suppose, the practical implementation of what they were talking about last episode, where like nobody is going to have time to work. So... <laughs> It's just, we now have this location. This is something we needed. We're getting all this money from this shell corporation. So this is ours now, but don't worry. You don't need to have this job. You need to go home and get in the headset. Also, I don't know why I didn't notice this before, but the name of that place is Forever Fab. And that's just, it's really all I have to say about that. Might be better than Kinko's. So I love though that even during the scene, when they step outside, it's just, I love how in tune they are to each other because he notices her hand. He's always like looking, you know, out for her, paying attention to kind of what's going on with her. He's like, well, what's that about? And they don't really address it right then because Connor, I, I wrote in my notes that Connor steps up. But the only reason I did that is because of the ridiculous amount of digs that Burton was taking at him about his hands and feet. Just, yeah, Connor, Connor rolls up. And he's like, oh, I found a note, thought you might need some help, so something along those lines. And he tries to detach his, his wheelchair from his cool vehicle situation, but it's stuck. And Burton's like, do you need a hand? And he just glares at him. He's like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Bad choice of words. And then Connor starts laughing because he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, that would really offend me. So then Burton just goes all in on every single punny bullshit thing he can say it's great 
I I liked it. I mean, on one hand, it's obviously it's very silly, but on the other, I think it shows a different side maybe of the bond that they have since the last conversation they had was just very, it, it felt very like platoon leader to soldier, you know, and this very much shows that they at least at one time may have had a different dynamic. Yeah. And they both seem to really enjoy that camaraderie and like friendly interaction. Yeah. So then the Fishers are in the Jeep. And this is the reason I mentioned the hand earlier, because he sees it again. And this gives me an opportunity to say again that they are constantly establishing that Flynn tells people what's going on. Yeah, because she admits, she's like, I don't know. I keep losing control of my hand. And he's like, is it from the sim? And she's like, I I genuinely don't know. And all right, we'll keep an eye on it. She's open. She tells him. She even mentions to him, and I know this is like kind of necessary for him to get angry, but when he's talking about who he told what, she also offers up the information that she spoke to Billy Ann. It's like they're, I feel like it's almost a mission debrief, you know? Yeah, and she, but she actually admits, and she's like, oh, I told Billy Ann. He's like, told her what? Everything. And Burton flips out, like his face. And, like, his eyes, if they could have popped out of his head in, like, shock and horror, would have. Truly. Truly. And Flynn makes a good point. She's like, look, you have your troop. You have your friends. You can talk to them about this. Maybe not tell them the whole truth, whatever, but you have them to talk to. I don't have anyone. All I have is my best friend, Billy Ann. And, like, this is a lot to handle. And I think that Burton gets it, but then he points out the giant issue jasper yeah which is 100 necessary in this particular episode because plot but he does make a valid point about married couples and the fact that you if you want one to keep a secret from the other you might be uh going down the wrong road there yeah might might be a problem but i think that burton like aside like the jasper of it all aside understands why Flynn did what she did because she was just talking to her best friend. She wasn't thinking about the fact that she's married to Corbell Pickett's nephew. Burton is thinking very strategically and she's just being human. She didn't connect that. She did. I mean, there's no way when she was telling her best friend, she even thought about the ramifications of telling her or made any of those connections to who might find out because of it. I mean, she's just, you know, she's just being human. This might be a little early to in the episode to postulate on this, but later we see Billy Ann interacting with Jasper. And I genuinely, because of Jasper's connection and like lackey status with his uncle, I would like to believe that she's smart enough to not go spilling any of the Flynn's dirty laundry because she knows it'll get back to Corbell because like she seemingly loves Jasper. But she also knows that Jasper is under Corbell's thumb. He very much is. And I don't think we've seen that in such a blatant way up till this point. So, I, I mean, I'm totally with you. And clearly this has been a point of contention up to this interaction because she blatantly is like, you know, that better not be drugs. And it's like, oh, he knows how you feel about that. So, I mean, there have been fights over not only Corbell, not only the things they do, but the way that Jasper is involved in it and things of, of that nature. So 
Yeah, but I mean, we'll we'll get we'll get to that specific interaction. But based off of the way that Billy Ann carries herself, I couldn't see her being like, "Oh, hey, hun, guess what <laughs> Flynn told me." Exactly. Exactly. I think she's a, a bit more trustworthy given the situation than Burton might assume. Yeah. So we have the Fishers finish their conversation. They just kind of drive off in silence as they both think about the ramifications of what they both learned. <laughs> And we cut to 2100, where Lev opens a big crate, and inside is Flynn. Well, the Flynn peripheral. And Wilf is there, and he's like, you keep her in a box? And Lev has this entire thing about how peripherals aren't people. Like, it's an AI machine that is a thing and not a person i don't know how far they will ever go into this but it does set up that potential road of exploring that you know what it means to be alive and whether they are really machines versus that sort of thing but i love that flynn comes in and basically has the same reaction as wilf it's like, did you keep me in a box? <laughs> That's not where you keep me, right? But then, of course, Lev, like, immediately lies to her. When it's so obvious that, yes, that is, in fact, where they were keeping you. <laughs> yeah, like, what else would they be doing? So we learn it later, but I'm going to just kind of insert it here because I feel like it goes given what is happening. We learn that the peripherals are actually run by AI if they're not being inhabited, which answers the question that I had all the way back in episode one, when Flynn woke up into Burton's and he was already on the motorcycle. Cause obviously when that was a SIM, it was kind of like, eh, but if it was real, it was like, wait, what was it doing before then? But they are run by AI on their own until a Polt, which is short for poltergeist overtakes them. And the Polt is the consciousness that's, coming into them from another spot. So Flynn is a Polt in this situation and the, the peripheral can function without her. It's just, you know, essentially a robot at that point. Which I think is a really fun bit of lore that we learn because with every little bit of lore, they drop, it's making the world of 2100 so much more interesting and this episode does a lot to really explain to us what the culture is in 2100 in this world this sim whatever this place is yeah it becomes more intricate because you see that this is not something that's just like part of the resistance i mean this is something that's built into their culture you see later you know when when wilf is speaking to the coid that Everybody knows what a peripheral is. That's something that's actually logged, you know, for travel and different things through their society. So it starts to kind of beg questions about, okay, what are they doing that is wrong or different or out of compliance? And essentially, I think what what you start to find out is the normal people who would be expected to come into a peripheral would just be people who live in other places during the current time period. It's a it's a way of travel, essentially. Maybe that's not the only purpose, but as that is something that can be used for. So where these guys are completely 
breaking the mold and going outside of predetermined, you know, acceptance is by bringing somebody in from the past, which obviously can't be documented because they're not supposed to be there to start with. Yeah. So they have this, this conversation and they're like, oh, we're meeting in the kitchen again. Or Lev tells Flynn and Wilf that they're meeting in the kitchen again. And they meet in the kitchen and Flynn is just giving them like, because they're looking for Alita. And Flynn's like, seemed pretty obvious to me, this Marielle woman, the woman that she seduced, and then they cut an eyeball out of and stuck it inside of Burton's peripheral. That's a sentence right there. She worked for the Research Institute, or RI. And, and she's like, well, we figure out who this, this person is. And I'm like, oh, we know who this person is. It's, it's Marielle. She works for RI. RI is scary. We need to stay away from RI. And that complicates finding Alita. And Flynn starts trying to drill more into the intricacies of the world and like what happens in 10 years and like trying to dig more information. And Lev is just like, oh, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Corbell Pickett wanting to murder you. Yeah. And while I can see that's a pressing issue, Lev is very good at just kind of steering the conversation away from whatever he does not want to talk about at any given time. And he doesn't do it with any form of subtlety, but he Absolutely has enough not. power in the interpersonal relationships in the room where Flynn is even like, oh, fuck, okay. Yeah, clearly we're done with this then. Oh, yeah. Lev has all of the power in the room between everybody that is under his employ, and he doesn't even have to try very hard to sell them. And Flynn just gets it. She's like, oh, I guess we just go with with this. Oh, Corbell Pickett, you say? Yes. A man whom she is clearly very familiar with. And I like that as soon as she finds this out, she's like, I gotta go. <laughs> like, this is something that needs to be taken care of. We can't just ignore this until I do whatever little fun journey adventure I'm on here today. Well, and, and they bring up footage. They're like, Corbell Pickett's a bad dude. And she's like, I fucking know who Corbell Pickett is. And they pull up the footage, the news footage, of the 12 cartel people that he crucified on the side of the fucking road. Right. And up till that point, the only thing that we knew was that he had killed three people. And it's like, I mean, talk about amping up the stakes. He upped the ante on that shit real quick. <sighs> yeah, he did. And Flynn is like, oh, he's coming to kill us. Okay, because they noticed a lot of web traffic from Corbell about the Fisher. So he's trying to figure out what they're in. And they're like, the only thing we can figure is that somebody from our time contacted him in the stub situation. And he wants to cause you harm. And she's like, all right, you got to send me back right now. I'll be back in an hour. Boom, they send her back. So here is what I find interesting. Or maybe I still have questions about. It seems now... That when she enters, when she puts on the headset, that she goes to 2100. Now, maybe there's just something they're not showing us there about how, you know, they're basically, the people there may be informed, like, oh, she's plugged in and they bring her in. I find it interesting that she still has absolutely no control over getting out and has to now basically be at the mercy of these people. You know, she's like, please send me back. Because she still has no way to get out of this herself. And for me, 
like you and I, we both have a certain archetype of character that is our jam, and it happens to be the same type of character. And Flynn falls into that in a lot of ways. Sure. But I think that her willingness or her curiosity about what's going on, or, I mean, she's keeping her word because they, they like, fixed her mom's brain issue. Mm-hmm. She's giving up control to a degree that really doesn't fit the archetype of a character that we usually love. Right, yeah. She's being very modest, I think, in her own abilities. Some of it feels like she's kind of gauging these people a bit. But I guess also not only with keeping her word. I mean, at this point, she's kind of stuck in this. I mean, both literally and figuratively. She's having to ask them to leave. But also she can't stop doing this because it's trickled back to the past so obviously that it's not like she can deny what's going on. She is well and truly stuck. But like... If I were her, I'd be like, I need an escape button. (laughs) Can you please give me like a little trigger that I can pull that like sends me back to my time? Because some of this shit is like real fucked up. Yeah, because Ash is running around with like a freaking magic eight ball that takes care of all this stuff. That's like execute, send her back. (laughs) That thing is is freaky. Yeah, it was it, it will get to it, but it's it's a moment. We we then, as Flynn gets sent back, we cut to a flashback where we see a young Wilf and a the creepy kid from the cold open of the pilot who actually is Alita. Uh-huh. They are bonded foster siblings who were found on the street and because of something that happened, there's some rich white aristocratic motherfuckers who are adopting children to help out the cause. And they're asking about immunizations and things. This is interesting, right? Because whatever happened in this world happened quite some time ago. So it's not the same issue that we're dealing with from when these two were kids. But they're in a situation where it looks like there's almost a clean room at the bottom of the stairs, like some sort of hazmat situation going on. Where did these kids come from? What did they come out of? But this, all this does is clarify what their relationship is. It does nothing beyond that besides give me 50 questions. Yeah. It's actually quite fucked up because the rich white people are like, oh, we love Alita. We want Alita. And the adoption guy is like, oh, they're a bonded pair that, like, you can't take one and not the other. And they're like, are you sure about that? And Alita's like, fuck you! (laughs) Pretty sure. (laughs) And they're like, I guess we can take the other one. So he was Wolf. Because he was Wolfgang. Yes. And then the guy was like, but what if we made it something more familiar, like Wilfred? And I'm like, I feel like Wolfgang is like pretty, like, I don't understand how hoity-toity these motherfuckers are, but like. (laughs) I mean, but it's like Mozart, man. Like, how? I don't know. And at what point did Wilfred become like really popular? It's just a weird, it's it's a weird exchange. So now Wolf is Wilf. I guess that's convenient. 
And <laughs> it's the entire thing. I'm just like, man, this couple, like, fuck them. Like, if I saw them in a dark alley, I'd kick them in the crotch. Yeah, for real. And then run away because they have money. <laughs> They're very interesting, to say uh, the least. But they give us this flashback, which we can presume is what Wilf is thinking about as he sips from his flask in the back of a vehicle and looks very, very uncomfortable. And the reason is he is outside his adopted parents' fucking estate. Indeed. And he enters, he he, or he doesn't knock, he just enters, goes in, and he hears Alita singing. And he's like, holy shit, I found her. This was so easy. I just had to go home. It's great. But it's not Alita. It is a Alita robot. Like there are, like the robot that we saw in the car in the pilot Mariel's robot thing. Coid. It's Coid, thank you. Her Coid, so it's a Coid, but it's not like a generic Coid. It has Alita's face really creepily programmed on it and it has her voice Mm -hmm. and wolf is like oh my god alita and then it's a coid and he's like oh that's that's kind of twisted also kind of shows that mom's got some issues some (laughs) mom's got several issues (laughs) mom is a walking pile of just issues it really is she's being held together by issues so Wilf didn't come to dad's funeral. She hasn't seen Alita, at least at home, in years. There's obviously been some gigantic fracturing in this family. Which is not to assume that there was ever anything good going on to begin with. But it sounds like that mom very much was like, we want children to be seen and not heard. And instead she got two, like, (laughs) strong-headed, like, wild children Especially Alita, because from what little we've seen of her, but we've heard, like, she hasn't been, like, she wasn't in episode two, but you'd be hard-pressed to not think that she was not there, because she's brought up enough, like, her presence is felt throughout every episode. Correct, yeah. She, She is a looming presence, and it seems like... Anytime they're in 2100, someone is either talking about her, explaining her, going through her past. She's definitely a very central figure, whether she's on the screen or not. Yeah. But basically, Wilf is like, I do not want to be talking to you, but we'll be cordial. We'll be cordial. And his mom's just a raging bitch to him. And he asks The last time she saw Alita at home, it's been years, but she saw her a month ago and asked her where she was staying, like what she was up to. And Alita said where the snow last fell in London, which in my mind was like, oh, there was snow falling outside when Wilf and Alita got adopted. Mm hmm. Maybe it's the location of, like, their adoption. I was incorrect. I got tricked by the TV show yet again. Ooh. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking, so where Snow Last Fell in London, I mean, I took it literally. 
But then also, I don't know a ton about London. So I was like, does it snow in London as it is? Is this an uncommon occurrence? Is it an uncommon occurrence then? Which, I mean, it, it would obviously have to be uncommon for it to mean anything if it was literal. Because it's like, oh, snow fell two minutes ago. Run! Like, it doesn't... Well... You can't find a location that way. And, and, and their mom makes an interesting, like, kind of comment about how Alita can't talk just like straightforward she has to talk in riddles or in in like in code she can never just say what she means right it sounds like she's always been a pretty cryptic kind of like she's always playing some sort of game yeah that just seems to be like part of her personality and the mom dismisses wilf and is like she offered him tea he was like no i'm good so she has her coid prepare tea for her, like pour tea. And the, the tea was poured maybe a minute ago. She grabs the tea and she's like, I think it's time you leave. Our tea has gotten stale or lukewarm or something along those lines. <laughs> and it's just like, you're dismissed. Yeah, is essentially what happened. I, I like the dig he makes at her, though, where it's like, oh, you basically programmed alita because she's like your favorite but then also make sure to underscore as long as she has like no personality whatsoever <laughs> it <laughs> was a good interaction it was it they was both, they both threw some jabs very passive aggressive that was some hardcore shadow boxing it really was and i think it was a good introduction to make me curious as to what actually happened between all these people give you know over the years so while Wilf is doing that. Flynn has to go back to 2032 for a hot minute to talk to Burton about what's going on with Corbell. And Burton's intention, obviously, is just to kill him. It's like, oh, he was going to kill us, so we'll just kill him. And she's not really about that life for some reason. Well, she says that's, that is what Corbell would do, but that's not what we do. That's not the kind of people we are. And Burton makes the point. He's like, yeah, the core, like... They kind of made me the person, like that kind of person. Mm-hmm. But she still has so much faith in him. And she, they talk about the I Semper and something else, some military jargon. Semper Fi. Semper Fi. It's it. That's totally not my bag. Completely clueless about it. But basically, she asks him after the. She's. He's like, "Oh, do you know what this means?" And she's like, "Yeah, but I also know what this means." And. She's like, you need to figure out where your loyalty lies. Right. So Semper Fi is the Marine slogan, if you will. Maybe motto is a better word. Slogan sounds so cheap. It's the promise, essentially. It means always faithful. So always loyal. And that's why she's saying, like, is your loyalty to this organization or is your loyalty to basically our unit, which is our family unit? And who we are and what we stand for. Exactly. You're not in war anymore, buddy. Well, you're about to be, but not the same kind. (laughs) Debatable. And she's like, promise me you will not do any. And he's like, okay, give give me a better idea and I won't go kill him. And they shake on it. And he's like, I will not do anything until you give me either a better idea or not a better one. And we go with mine. And she's like, okay, I stopped him. And he goes and, like, hops in his Jeep. And she's like, oh, son of a bitch. And she, like, runs out of the house and is like, that goes for Connor, too. 
She knows Burton so well. He's like, well, she didn't say the other guy couldn't kill him. <laughs> and I, you could see his face when she calls out. And that goes for Connor, too. He's kind of like, well, fuck. <laughs> she cares so much about Connor. It's like, even if it were if it were somebody else, it wouldn't have been as impactful. And then when she runs out and is yelling about Connor, because they definitely have their their special little almost sibling thing going on, too. Well, while Burton is off headed to whatever it is that he's going to do, Flynn goes back into the headset and re her coid. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just trying to insert jargon <laughs> to see how weird it will sound. It sounded so stupid. I love how you've now made Polt a verb. Like, it's just a <laughs> thing that happens. She's repulting, you know, how you do. <laughs> I will refrain from doing that in the future, because as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> abort! <amazing>. Abort! <laughs> no, um, it's happened. She's repulted. She can't get out unless she asks someone to let her leave. <laughs> but what happens is she is in Wilf's the back of Wilf's vehicle. And he's like, okay, well, we're just going to drive around the general area. We know you were when you were in Burton's peripheral. And we're going to look like, find something that looks familiar. So we can find where Alita took you or where you took Mario. Yeah. This seems like a solid plan. (laughs) This is just throwing shit at the wall and hoping something sticks. (laughs) (laughs) And, what happens is they decide to go out on foot to better cover the area because they can sync themselves together. Can you explain this better than me? Because they like somehow mentally sync up and control like the view from the other people's eyes by like rubbing their fingers together. So he doesn't necessarily explain it in the future quite how it works but it is several times alluded to that it's essentially the same thing as the haptics do for Burton and his crew it's like you've essentially been allowed into each other's minds so you can see you know what they think what they feel you're also merged together in a certain way I love that Burton later reveals to her, you know, linking up, merging with souls like that. It can feel a lot like love if you don't know any better. But how convenient that Wilf completely left that out. And then plays the game that he does play to get them out of trouble. So they Mm -hmm. split up. She goes down one street. Wilf goes the other way down another street. And I guess she's walking weird (laughs) because (laughs) a police officer, Coyd, Starts following her and she like looks back and like direct messages Wilf through their brains and is like, oh, what about the cops? Is that a problem? And he looks, she looks back, he looks like he splits his vision. One eye is his eye. The other eye is her eye, which is like really trippy. They do a really good job like graphically in the show. And he's like, oh, son of a bitch. He's like, take the next right and I'll meet you there and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they meet up. And he's like, when I signal you, ask to be sent back. Yeah, when I touch my chin, ask if you can go home. 
And what happens is this cop coid is like, hey, this is an unregistered peripheral. She was acting really weird. Yeah, I was basically saying, what, did, what was it? She was moving with too many degrees of like uncertainty or with certainty whatever like she's not random enough like clearly there's a person in here (laughs) and wolf basically comes up with a story that his girlfriend from canada had requested to come back so that they could talk and it was she only had three visits and she already used her three up. So it was like an extra visit and he hadn't gotten approval for it. And no, she then, has she has 10. She's taken to this one was last minute. He didn't register yet. Thank you. It was an unregistered visit into a peripheral to be together. And the cop is like, well, you got to check this peripheral in for like decontamination, deconstruction, whatever it may be. And Wolf is like, oh, fuck, this is going badly. And Ash previously was like, I'm not helping you. Like, you get out of this or, like, we're, like, cutting ties with you and, like, letting you, like, out into the wind. Like, whatever happens to you is your issue. Yeah, flail away, buddy. So this whole kind of interaction brings up an interesting thing too because he starts appealing to this coid as if it were a human you know he's like oh actually we were arguing let me get you in on this and i don't know if it's because it's supposed to be like kind of a a riddle to solve but he basically like pulls this thing into their relationship drama which of course isn't real but doesn't matter and is then like does that classic like we probably should kiss so that there's a distraction but what is this saying about these coids like are they programmed with some sort of feelings do they have some sort of like almost almost a an empathy within them because then he's very much like okay well just make sure you register like as if the robot was uncomfortable yeah the robot seemed uncomfortable because the story that wolf comes up with is that this is his girlfriend and she just found out that he made a coid of his ex-girlfriend. Peripheral. A peripheral. My bad. This terminology is just going <laughs> to mess me up forever. He made a peripheral of his ex-girlfriend and was too cheap to get another peripheral that looked like his new girlfriend. And she just found out. So she jumped out of the car in a huff. And then he does this whole thing. He appeals to the cop coid. And then he's like, but I think I'm falling in love with you. We should kiss now. Let's kiss. Yeah, and it's very much like, huh, does he maybe mean that? Because he just talks about, you know, like how intrigued he is by her and and all that. So you're like, hmm. And she's totally falling for it. Like, she's not acting, I don't feel like. Oh, no, um, because they kiss. The cop is like, register the visit next time. And the lady... <laughs> And and she asks when, when Wilf touches his chin, she's like, may I go home now, officer? And he's like, yep. And Ash hits the button and boom, she's back. But she takes off that headset and she is like a love-struck teenager. <laughs> she is like, oh my god. She is shooketh. <laughs> for sure. To her core, she does not know what just happened. No, but it's like that 
And the moment, it seems like really sweet. But when you hear what Burton says later about how haptics work, then it's kind of like, mm, hey. what's up your sleeve there, Wolfie? See, that would that nickname would work better if they just kept the fucking Wolfgang. Yeah. <laughs> but while, while Flynn is, is in 2100 going on these shenanigans, Burton has gone to the local watering hole and kicks Jasper out of his seat and tries to cut a deal with Corbell. This is a scene. <laughs> it's good. It's understated. I mean, they're just sitting at a table. But there is a lot of undercurrent here that's happening, especially as, I mean, and obviously it was planned for this episode on purpose, but what we've really seen that Corbell is capable of, instead of him just being, you know, the guy who sits in the bar smashing lackeys, heads into shot glasses i mean he's scary but in this moment i have a feeling there will be a moment later where this is not true in this moment burton definitely holds his own with him and he's basically like look i can give you two hundred thousand dollars a week for you to leave us alone for the foreseeable future aka there's no expiration on this or like maybe we'll just sniper you and he shows Cormel his haptics. And he's like, you know what these are? He's like, I've heard about them. Well, he explains that it links him and his squad. The army specifically went to small, lower economical status towns and found groups of friends who already had camaraderie to link with these haptics and it came as like a pre-built unit for the army and it basically makes them like one in the same so if he does anything to hurt burton or flynn he's got an entire squad of people who are out to kill him and he tells a story about this one time when he was in the service he went to a bar and for no reason whatsoever he just kicked the ever he like blacked out and kicked the ever-living shit out of some dude and he found out later, he, like, came to over this guy that he had just beaten to a bloody pulp. And it turns out that this guy fucked with one of his squad unit, squad members. And it was that trauma that triggered him to black out and, like, take out that rage on this person. And Corbell is like, okay, whatever. And he's like, he's like, so what I'm saying is if you hurt me or you hurt my sister, you've got an entire squad of people out to get you. And he proves his point by activating his haptics and having his buddy, which is Connor, and I don't know the other fellow's name, shoot a sniper rifle and completely take out Corbell's glass that's in his hand. Yeah, which is a, a serious shot. Impressive. But it, it, all of this is going to show that this these links are serious. Which is not only an issue here, where at some point, essentially, they just lose control of themselves. These men, you know, in certain situations, they're not even, there's no higher brain function. Like, these are lizard brain only issues. And it also, though, points across the aisle to now Flynn and what she's got going on with Wilf to say, how are these things potentially similar more so than we might be aware of at the moment. Well, and the thing to remember, too, is that 2100 
is based off of the tech that they had in 2032. Because they're, when the haptics came into effect, that was not in the stub situation. That was in the natural timeline. Right. So it makes sense that the tech that Wilf used with Flynn is some byproduct of this haptics tech, probably of what they would consider very primitive haptics tech in 2032. Also kind of begs the question back to the pilot of the pain that Burton feels, AKA, is it his pain? Is it his pain or fun question? Is it Connor's pain? Uh huh. But ultimately what ends up happening is Corbell is like, all right, I'm outclassed right now, but we'll see how long this lasts, but I'll take 200 K a week. Sounds great. And they shake on it. And of course, poor, sweet, naive Tommy at that very moment is picking up lunch at this bar and grill and turns to see Burton shaking hands with none other than Corbell Pickett. And he looks very confused and a little distraught as well. He should be. That's a, a very strange pairing, especially considering the stuff that Tommy's been seeing lately. He <laughs> poor baby. And we've said before, like he would almost be better off if he was just a bumbling idiot, but he's not. And it's going to get him in so much trouble. We want him to be the Barney Fife of this town, but he has too much brain. I know. Protect him, please, somebody. (laughs) And then simultaneously, while Flynn is in 2100 and Burton is cutting a deal, we cut to one of the very interesting sculpture buildings in 2100 that looks so out of place. It turns out that one of these buildings is actually the Research Institute's building. And we see Sharice and Daniel. Oh, Daniel. Oh, Daniel. Walking on a balcony. And Sharice is basically like, it's taking you too long to deal with this stub problem. Like, fucking get them killed already. Yeah, one would think this is not that big of a deal. Apparently it is. Oh, well, yes, because we know they're dealing with our people. But in theory, <laughs> anything for our people. It's just a couple of like, you know, hick town folks. They should have shot by now. Like, it doesn't yeah. seem like it should be that big of a deal. And she's like, yes, I get the stub, you know, causes causes some difficulties. But you have to get it done. It's taking you too long. And then she asked Daniel for a download on how Alita could have possibly found out what she knows. And he informs her that one of the researchers for the Stub Project, Grace, was roommates with Alita for a year. And Sharice is like, hmm, interesting. And he's like, want me to take care of her? And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. Let me have my fun. I got this. And this is where Sharice also becomes Corbell Pickett. (laughs) Sharice is fucking terrifying. She's not here just to give orders. She's very excited to participate on her own. She's like, ooh, 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 I get to murder someone. Yay. And she threatens Daniel. She's like, 
you do know that I could kill you. And he's like, yep, I do. And she's like, but I don't want you working for us purely out of fear because that's a short term incentive. I want you to really be on board with us. And as she's saying this, the balcony that they're on, she waves her hand and it starts dissolving into sand and falling like a hundred stories below. And there's just this huge gap in the balcony. And Daniel's like feet are like over the edge. Like his toes are over the edge. And he looks terrified would not be surprised if he shit his pants i mean what does this chick have going on she has like magical powers some sort of ai built in was that real or not because it's it's like you saw the wind gusting up and then she just walked right over it it i think it it lends itself to the theory that 2100 is a simulation where the remaining humans on earth whenever this bad thing happened uploaded their consciousness into some ai and she somehow got like admin powers (laughs) okay so you don't think 2100 is even like real I don't know because I think it's real and then she does something like that and I'm like it can't be real (laughs) Hey, that is fair. That's fair. Like, I keep flip-flopping back and forth because I'm like, oh, 2100, they did some weird shit. And then all of a sudden, she's just like, snap my fingers and like something dissolves and I can walk on air. And I'm like, maybe it's not. Right. Well, because this is not something that's made from a past that's not our own. Meaning this story is not completely disconnected from what we know of as the world. So it's not like it's been established in any sort of way that there's like magical powers or any sort of like VR. What I guess it would be AR at that point, like augmented reality into that. Nothing has been established that makes what she did. Okay. (laughs) No, it was seriously fucked up. I was like sitting there and I'm like, I thought it was real. And now I don't think it's real, but I bet you to next episode, like next week, I'm going to be like, oh, it's real. Right. Yeah. Because everything that seems not real is somehow real. So then she decides it's time, you know, for her to just often have some tea with this grace lady who works in the actual, you know, department where they deal with peripherals versus Alita, who was what, like a gardener, (laughs) essentially. I think effectively, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she's basically like, how did the janitor (laughs) figure out what we were doing? And this is where you see that Sharice is not only a lackey leader like Corbell either. She wants to just go ahead and get right on involved in what's happening here. The interesting part to me is that she doesn't question Grace at all. She has no interest in whatever information she may have. This is just like, you know what? I think I'm going to have a fun afternoon with my bees and some murder. Nothing quite like bees, tea, and murder. It's It's, just like the perfect combination. I mean, that trifecta is really... (laughs) So she's she's has a rooftop garden full of bees, and Grace comes... And she's like, oh, you know, Grace, we never get a chance to talk. And then they walk into like a greenhouse and close the doors and all the bees are on the outside. 
Sharice is like, oh, do you know Alita? Whatever the fuck. And she's like, oh, kind of. Are you friends? Well, we're acquaintances. And she's like, but you lived together for a year. And she's like, oh, yeah, I guess so. And she's like, you told her about the stub stuff. And she was like, well, she was curious. I don't know. And <laughs> while this is happening, Sharice takes a thing of honey and mixes it into Grace's tea. And does not mix it into her own tea, if I'm correct. Yeah, and so this whole thing, though, I mean, she's completely uninterested in what Grace may or may not know. I mean, she's she killed her at the beginning of this interaction. Yeah, like, because she did the honey thing, Grace took a sip of it, and then she started asking her these questions about Alita, and... The bees start, this is like a thing of nightmares. The bees start like clawing at the glass, like completely covering the glass of the greenhouse. And Grace is like, oh, those bees, what's going on? And Sharice is like, oh, the tea you just drank has a certain pheromone of hornets in it. And bees hate those. So the bees are going to kill you. And she's like, what? No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have told her. I didn't realize, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I genuinely don't give two shits. I'm going to open these doors and the bees are going to kill you. So that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, that's what my afternoon was going to consist of, regardless of what you said. So thanks like, for stopping saying, by. It's just like in one ear, out the other. I'm really, really horny for you to get murdered by bees. So that's what's going to happen. <laughs> she opens the doors. The bees kill Grace. I mean... That was a pretty legit description of that whole scene, to be honest. Yeah, like that that's what happened. It was amazing, terrifying. I am like, I'm like, oh Hannah from Bly Manor. And now I'm like, oh she is next level villain right here, this one. So now we have to cut back to quote unquote the real world, I guess, which is much less interesting than horny bee murder. Truly. <laughs> Billy Ann and Jasper have to get into it a bit. And this is where it comes out, you know, that she's like, you better not be carrying drugs. Like this is where we actually see that there's been some, some tension in their marriage over Jasper's uncle to begin with. So he has to go and drop off this money, which is obviously just the money that he got from Kinko's that Burton has agreed to give him weekly. And he, all he really has to do is walk through this building to get to Corbell for you to start seeing this drug operation is no freaking joke. Seriously. I mean, this is like a well-oiled machine. He's got a full warehouse. This, I mean, whatever this guy is doing, first of all, he did not just start doing it. Well, obviously, I mean, we assume that about 17 years ago, he kind of took over this quote unquote, you know, over this town but holy crap. I mean, he's got like a whole system going on here. They be manufacturing a lot of drugs. Yeah. So Jasper, thank God, even though he toyed with the idea, was smart enough not to take cash on his own. That, that pointed out a couple things to me, though. One, maybe Jasper's not quite as dumb as he seems. But two, <laughs> I think it came out. I think that what it demonstrated was his absolute and utter fear of his uncle i mean you watch your uncle murder 12 men and then hang them up on crosses when you're still a child i mean it's a pretty good deterrent from that might instill just a smidge of fear yeah it's 
that very much has like don't challenge me written all over it. <laughs> so yeah, I can respect like, that. Yeah. He enters Corbell's office and Corb and hands over the bag. He's like, This is the bag from Burton's dudes. And Corbell just dumps it out and it's 200k. And he's like, ha ha ha, they're gonna give this to me every week. Can you have you ever seen this much money? And Jasper's looking at it like a person who hasn't had water in years. And Corbell's like, here, take one. And Jasper's like, oh no. And he's like, yeah, go ahead, take one. So dumb dumb Jasper takes it and is like looking at it. And Corbell's like, lesson. Never take something from somebody without asking what they want in return. And so Jasper's like, oh, John, just kidding. And he goes to give back the money. But Corbell's like, no, 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 you already took it. And so Jasper's like, what do you want? This just feels like Corbell playing with him. Because I'm pretty sure he could have gotten him to do that just by asking. But instead, he is like playing this chess game that Jasper didn't even know they were at the table to play. Yeah. And it just, it's another way of just showing like how creepy he is. He's terrifying. Yeah, I, I don't, I, he's a, a very, very good villain. He is. He does a really good job. And ultimately, Corbell is like, I want you to keep an eye on the Fishers. They're in, he's like, remember what I did to those cartel guys 17 years ago? Well, they're into something like that, and we need to keep this town safe, so I need you to keep an eye on them. So the one thing he has going on that's just absolutely disgusting is this idea of being a savior, right? They're into this stuff that they might bring back into our town. It's like, dude, you are trash. The only reason you wanted those people out to start with is so you could make like 11 gajillion dollars. You don't care about people. But the idea that he even tries to cover up his just maniacal nastiness with the idea that there might be something altruistic underneath it is it's like another layer of ick he's just so disgustingly evil he really is there's nothing more evil than somebody with like a god complex that's true so now we have jasper on the job to look into the fishers and we cut back to the fisher homestead where Flynn is talking to Burton about how she merged with Wilf. And he talks about his experience with the haptics and how you kind of merge into like one person Mm -hmm. and you can get lost in it and you can have feelings of love because of that drift, because you're so ingrained with another person that you can't distinguish the difference. And Flynn's just kind of listening like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And Burton says that it's called haptic drift. This says a couple things. So one, he very, very specifically mentioned, you're supposed to have training before this is done to prevent the kind of things that he's talking about, to prevent this haptic drift. You should understand what you're getting into. You sh- you need to like know what it feels like. You need to be, you know, to have the difference explained to you, this sort of thing, because obviously you're getting lost. Like it sounds not only like you might be getting lost in another person, which I do definitely think he said that, but I almost wonder if he also means like that you can 
just kind of get lost in your own mind where I like, I wonder if people like coma out of this, you know, that you can actually kind of lose your mind. I can see that. But to me, it lends itself back to the theory that I'm actually going to remember this week that I came up with (laughs) (laughs) that Flynn has done this before in another VR at some point that she has become lost and that this is a danger for her. It's almost like her, you know, she's tried to stay sober from this, if you will. This is her drug coming up and she's not able to avoid it. But now people are putting her in situations where she didn't even know what she was getting into. And it was, it was really unfair of Wilf to do that. So now it's interesting for her to try to, sort through like what is she feeling versus what actually happened what part of it was drift what does she think about this future you know it it seems like it's all getting really really muddled because of this linking that she did with wilf i think like a way to think about it in like drug terms is like flynn was addicted to opioids and then somebody without her realizing what was happening, got shot up with heroin. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying, I'm like, she's going to say heroin. Just going to say heroin. Yeah. Yeah. And totally. Yeah. I agree. It's like, well, here's a little bit different drug addict. <laughs> Enjoy this. It's like, you know, whatever it is times a million. And she's now so confused and like fighting it, but also loving it and not knowing how to handle what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, because you can tell, and it wasn't just the idea of love, like maybe she has feelings for him. She liked what happened, period. Like whatever that was making her feel overall, once she, you know, turned it down from his hangover and decided she wasn't going to barf. Yeah. There was something going on in that exchange that she was super into. Oh, yeah, 100%. So naturally what happens is that Flynn goes back into that set. (laughs) Oh, of course, right after that. And unlike we've seen her do up to this point with anything, I mean, she's a little she's a little mission oriented, sure. But she doesn't bring this up to Wilf at all. Nope. And I find that interesting, given that every time she has the opportunity with Billy Ann or with Burton, she spills. She doesn't hold things back. And so it shows you, I, I feel like this episode in particular is kind of a demonstration of how close they're getting but also differentiating like on what level are they getting close and does she actually trust him? I think also it might be a mix. I think it's a mix of that where like she doesn't necessarily trust him, but then she also shared a connection with him that supersedes any connection she's had with someone before. Cause she was literally one with Wilf. Mm-hmm. And I think it, kind of falls back into that drug situation. Like if say Wilf was like a conscientious drug dealer, if she was like, Oh, guess what? I'm an addict. He'd be like, okay, maybe no more for you. But she's (laughs) like, if I don't tell him. Yeah. Then maybe we get another taste of this crazy drug. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I agree. But we're, I believe at Wilf's place. And they're trying to figure out Alita's riddle that he, that she left with their mother. And Flynn, because plot. Yeah, reasons. <laughs> because plot is like, oh, where the snow last fell in London. Oh, Jon Snow, he died in London. And Wolf is like, ding, 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 winner. It's the place that he died. <laughs> okay, that was a little oversimplification. <laughs> 
I mean, so was we'll, it really? we'll tell her that it's where snow last fell in London. And she's like, what if snow is not like snow of what you're thinking of? Because like you said, plot painting something. And so Wilf is like, oh my goodness, Jon Snow. So apparently Alita was obsessed with Jon Snow. And so they determined, oh, it means the place where he died, where he last fell in London. And they come up with that. And that was a very good big win because that's how they come into the place where Mariel's eye was taken. They got cool, like, fake doors Flynn's like we have this clock at home and like what time is it set at how creepy is that Alita might have her own drug problem (laughs) it's called the past (laughs) she's addicted to the past (laughs) because she's like oh we have that clock at home and he's like what and she's like oh but it broke he's like what time did it break at and she's like 215 and he sets the clock to 215 and another secret door opens and it's the operating room where they pulled Flynn's eye out is it the clock I mean is it their clock Ooh, who knows man this show is so confusing sometimes (laughs) so they go in there they have this like crazy operating room this is like weirdly sad right but you see the two surgeons or whatever if you will at least (laughs) at the time are dead but he's like they're peripherals because they have to be put in nutrient baths to survive so they're kind of like like dried out husks of a peripheral right so there's some these these things are different from the coids right this is almost some sort of like robot human hybrid yeah there's something about them that is much more human than just a robot walking around. So we find out that Alita removed her implant. Now, question. Did we know that people have implants? We did not. She's like, oh, Alita must have removed her implant. And Wilf takes it and pockets it. It's like, we should get out of here. And I'm like, okay, the implant is from where? Does every person in 2100 have an implant? Is it just RI employees that have implants? Give me the background on these implants. Okay, is it smart to put said implant on yourself? (laughs) Well, I mean, there's no reason to think necessarily that it doesn't work, right? That seems like... Maybe it needs a biological trigger. Mm, Perhaps. But we also may have just come across Chekhov's implant. <laughs> well, we d- we do love Chekhov's random items. We do. So they did mention it. I'm just throwing it out there because while he had no role in this whatsoever, Wilf did say that the other technical's name is Ossian, which is so cool. That And that's all I think about that because he basically said Ash and Ossian can look into this. And so there was no point except for last week I was trying to – to determine from the captions, yeah, how to pronounce it. So I officially love that. Thank you, show, for us podcasters who were like, well, <laughs> I don't understand how to pronounce this name. Now we do. But I like it, too. I like it, too. Ossian is a dope-ass name. It really is. As they leave the little operating room, I guess who busts the door down to the apartment? It is Daniel and Akoid, and they are ready to murder them. And this is, this is, first of all, it's a really cool fight scene, obviously. It's very good. But I love that in this case, Daniel says out loud, like, what everybody's thinking, you know? Oh, she's like, okay, just kill me and, like, this will be over. And Daniel's a little smarter than that. 
And so he starts to he starts to say things too that can can lead us to other theories or questions that are going on because he says it leaves a trauma. And it's like, okay, she's already been shot in multiple places with these whole shockwave things and shot through the brain. He says it leaves a trauma. She's got this thing going on with her hand. Did he shoot her in the brain specifically that controls your right hand? Yeah, that like when she was in Burton's peripheral. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, but it's interesting to think of like what sort of neurological damage may be caused. I'm waiting for her to wake up one day completely covered in just like shards of glass and bleeding everywhere. And it's like, oh, there's some temporal bleed. Oh, but basically, they get to fighting, and Daniel has his supersonic boom gun, and he's he tries to, like, beat up Flynn. Wilf is taking on the coid. They're kind of losing, but they, they flip it. Flynn gets a hold of the gun and starts shooting Daniel, and is like, what do you want from me? And is like, tell me now. And Wilf has taken care of the coid, he thinks, but the coin gets back up. We see then evil mastermind of 2100, like somehow connects her eye to the coin's eye and sees that Daniel is kind of spilling some tea about her plans. Cause he's like, you took something from her. She's never going to stop until you're dead. And so Sharice through the coin, like sends a command to kill Daniel. That was beast. And, like, you can tell that the command was to kill Daniel. Not, like, it's obvious from, like, narratively. But if you didn't catch on to that's what happened, it's super obvious because the coid pops up and it has, like, a a sword. And Flynn turns around, sees it, steps out of the way, and the coid does not deter its path and just, like, chops Daniel's head right at the neck. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely uninterested in anyone else at the room at this point. And then the best shot of the episode, it like truly, oh, so good, is Sharice watching through the eye of the coid as you see Flynn turn to face the coid with the supersonic gun thing and fire. And Sharice just kind of like snaps out of it and like kind of shakes her head because she just got killed in her eye by being in the coid, but not actually. <laughs> it's weird. The show is kind of weird in like the best way possible. But like the shot of Flynn turning and like you see the triangle, like you're looking through the eye. Mm-hmm. It was, oh my goodness. I That shot, I watched, I was kept rewinding it and I'm like, cinematography. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. So now Flynn has found out though, I guess that's enough information to piss Sharice off. You took something from her. And it's like, what did they take? Who has any clue? But she's not saying that Alita took it. They're like specifically coming after Flynn for this. So the only thing that Flynn was ever in possession of was Miriam's eye. No. Okay, correct me. Because when they broke into our eye and Flynn scanned Miriam's eye to get into that special room... Alita was like, scan your eye. And then Flynn like went to scan Miriam's eye. And she was like, no, the other eye. 
Oh, so there's information in Flynn's brain that she's unaware of. Yes. And all Sharice wants is for that information to be inaccessible to anyone else. By killing Flynn. Ooh, trippy. Yeah, because that's that's what she got. That's what she has that Alita doesn't have. So Alita's kind of on the back burner. Like, this bitch was after it, but was smart enough to not download it into herself. Ooh. Alita is vicious. I love her. I love her so much. And Sharice is just terrifying. Sharice is like the scariest villain I've come across in a in a, like in a story in a very long time. I want to see her have some sort of showdown with Corbell Pickett. Like I just want them pitted against each other for a hot minute. It would be like two titans duking it out. Oof. The way that they would not get physical. I mean, they would just like say so little to each other, I feel like. It would playing. be the most epic case of shadow boxing in the <sighs> world. Like 4D chess between the two of them. Yeah, it would be bonkers. Oof. But that's where the episode ends with Flynn and Wilf taking out Daniel and Lacoid and Sharice not getting what she wants and losing a lackey in the process. Yeah, pour one out for Daniel. So much for me ever finding out about the backstory to that relationship. <laughs> yeah, I know, seriously. Although, let's pause it. I wonder if she has some more of him lined up. Ooh, she's got more Daniels in the, in the, in the, ready to fire the trigger on. Yeah. I wonder if she's got more Daniels. So, yeah, I've seen a lot on the socials from the peripheral account and from Chloe that episode four is kind of like the crux that it answers so many questions. So we're definitely looking forward to that coming up, which will be like later today by the time this comes out. So very much looking forward to that. And we apologize that our episode did not come out a little bit sooner, but you can't tell because Beep over here has pulled it together, but she's got the flu and should probably be asleep right now. That is absolutely true. And I'm going to go ahead and work on doing that as soon as I hit stop recording. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for your patience with us. We really appreciate the reviews that we've gotten. It's nice to get positive feedback. This really is just a project that we're doing because we like podcasting together and we really like this show. For sure. So thank you very much for listening and we will be back with episode four next week. It's going to be great. Have a good one.